Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today the spotlight is on Karen Allen. Karen's an expert on all things live streaming and is the author of Twitch for Musicians, now in its second edition. Karen's been an observer, commentator, and participant in the digital music landscape for over 20 years. Have a listen. I am very um, intrigued and excited to talk to you about um, your work around Twitch. Um, but I would love to start a little bit by um, just, you know, learn a little bit about your background and where you're from, get some context. Where am I talking to you from? Where are you right now? I'm actually in my husband's warehouse. Um, it's a <laughs> bit noisy in my neighborhood right now. There's a lot of construction going on in the houses around me. So I just figured I'd just go to my husband's warehouse. It's usually pretty quiet around here. Yeah. What part of the country are you in? Los Angeles. Okay. Yeah. Um, how are things down there? Um, well, the coronavirus is getting worse. We're definitely yeah. on the on the uprise um, when it comes to infection rate. So it's it's a little freaky right now. Yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, people you, are still uh, going out. <laughs> you know, the bars just closed down again. Yeah, that seems yeah. to be the story. Yeah, we um. Yeah. So I'm up in Seattle, and um, we've been lucky. King County's been sort of stable, but the rest mm -hmm. of the state is a mess. It gets rural pretty quickly outside of Seattle, and we've got a couple of areas that are, you know, it, it's, it, I've not I've I've not ventured into the some of the neighboring counties, but it sounds absolutely horrifying. Yeah, yeah. Once you get out of the real like lefty areas of Los Angeles County, you know, it, nobody wants to wear a mask, and that's that's how it spreads more than anything. Is you know, got to wear a mask. People don't want to do it, so everybody, or obviously, all my friends are entertainment or event business people. So I mean, our, our lives are all fairly decimated. I've had friends lose jobs. I'm watching industries collapse. And it's just, you know, it's really hard to watch people be so cavalier about that. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm sorry to lead our conversation down that, that, um, that avenue initially, but I also have found that in doing these interviews, it's, it's been very important to acknowledge um, not only what was happening in the COVID situation, but certainly what's been happening since the George Floyd murder. Um, I'm trying not to shy away from asking people how they are, how these things are impacting them. Um, it would just feel disingenuous. Um, but I also think it's helpful for people to hear. So one thing that, that stood out for me about your background that um, <laughs> you're probably going to think it's ridiculous given all the, the things you've accomplished, but I couldn't help but want to learn more about being a digital music strategist at the RIAA during the time period you were there. That to me is yeah. just like ground zero for so much fascinating turn, as well as like really setting the stage for the subsequent, you know, 20 years. Um, could you tell me a little bit about how you came into that role and, and what the role was? The role was very undefined, um, which was why it was called Internet Evangelist. So this was late 90s to early 2000s. They hired me and sued Napster six months later. So that was my timeline. That was my, you know, trial by fire, basically. So prior to that, I worked for um, a company called N2K. We had a website mm -hmm. called Rocktropolis. 
and it was one of the very first sort of music magazine style websites. Um, and I basically did a lot of the content for that. I knew a lot of managers. I knew a lot of the digital, the new media departments at the record labels, as they were called at the time, <laughs> new media. Um, yeah, so um, N2K ended up merging. We all got laid off. Uh, and I started putting the feelers out for a job. And um, one of, a friend of mine at one of the labels gave my name to Hillary Rosen at the RIAA because they were just at the very beginning of the whole MP3 download, um, peer-to-peer revolution. And we're trying to figure out what to do about that uh, and how to approach it. Um, and they wanted to have someone from the digital side of it basically the digital company side of it, the startup side of it, uh, sort of in-house, um, but also someone who understood the record business. So it was a really good match for me. I started my career in artist management and then pivoted pretty quickly into um, digital music startup. So had a you know really good balance of, of both going into that. And um, she called me up one day and flew me out to... DC and I sat with her and Carrie Sherman, um, a few other people and had a good, you know, two or three hour interview with them and they offered me a job. <laughs> so, so yeah. And it, you know, it was, they just needed help on a lot of different levels. So I worked with the marketing people. I worked with the PR people. Um, I worked with legal um, definitely with, not a lawyer, but um, I work with legal in, uh, in litigation and also in licensing. And I was just sort of the person to help them understand what was happening and to guide them through it and also to help, you know, guide music startups through the RAAA. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so part of what I did was, I, you know, I went to every conference and was in every digital music forum, you know, digitally that was out there, the full list and a bunch of others. And we're just sort of like the eyes and the ears uh, of the RIA, just sort of telling them, like, this is what's really happening out there. This is what we need to be paying attention to. And also sort of being, um, you know, the person in the room for the RIA to respond to everything that was happening in these forums. So it was really, really fascinating. The very first thing I did there actually was rebuild the website, which is the best thing I could have done because I didn't know a lot about the RAA when I started. And when you build a website for a corporation, you end up learning every little tiny fact about that company. Because I, um, I have to build sections for each one of them. Um, so that was extremely, extremely helpful. And then just sort of moving forward, you know, we had Napster. Um, gosh, there was, I think, I think Pirate Bay might have been around during that time, um, LimeWire. And then the DMCA was being written you know, and um, as I was leaving, Sound Exchange was being formed. I mean, it was just an extremely pivotal, fascinating time. I learned a hell of a lot um, about the legal side of the business. I learned a hell of a lot about politics. Um, at the end of the day, the RA, we're lobbyists. That's, what, that's why they're in D.C. It's, it's a lobbying yeah. organization that also does the Golden Platinum Program. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, they're there to stick up for the rights of the um, sound recording copyright holders, which is the labels, but which I knew would not only be the labels. It didn't take too much to look down the road and see that artists would be releasing their own records 
and record labels would be less and less needed in the whole equation of an artist's career. So as much as there was a fight at that time between artists saying um, very publicly, Napster's okay, put the music out there, whatever, and the record label saying, no, pay us, I knew that would flip at some point where everything that the RA was fighting for was actually the same thing that the artists were going to benefit from once we got past the reliance on the record labels. And it's completely true. It's completely true. I mean, everything that we were fighting for then was literally, should there be a copyright digitally? The Napster argument was not how much should we pay you. It was whether we should pay you, you know, whether we should license this, whether there should be a payment for an MP3. There was an argument then that, you know, it's freedom of information and freedom of speech. And therefore, it didn't be paid at all. I mean, that, that, was the, that was the argument that was going on when I was there. Um, yeah. And that would not have played out well. You know, here we are 20 years later. That argument would not have played out well for all the independent artists. I mean, Chance the Rapper's doing pretty well. Lil Nas X did pretty well. You know, all these independent artists who actually be able to make a living, you know, selling their, selling their downloads and, and um, being on the streaming services and having claim to, you know, being able to monetize their copyrights online. That, that happened while I was there. Given the, um, the line you must have straddled just in terms of your network and web of relationships. So you have, you're employed by basically the industry's lobbying organization, but you're really, you're their conduit to what's happening on the ground in terms of new innovation, new ideas, new companies. I would have to think that there were some days where both camps treated you slightly mistrustfully and then other days where they must have relied on you very strongly to be sort of the, that, that channel between the two. Like, was there a tension? Um, did the RIAA folks ever believe you were too far on the other side as an advocate? And did the, did the external community ever say, oh, here comes the lady from industry to tell us why we're, you know, why our ideas are never going to work? I, what, was the, what was the dynamic there? I think more the latter than the former. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely pushed the RAA on, on some ideas, but I don't think they ever felt that I wasn't working for them. Again, because I always, cause I started my career as an artist manager, and I cared about what was going to happen with the artists, and I knew that eventually they would own all their own sound recordings. So everything I fought for at the RAA, I was actually fighting for for the artist. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were, we were fairly in lockstep with each other. The rest of the industry, obviously, there was heated debates that <laughs> many people could attest to um, across many conferences and, and online forums. That was trickier to navigate because I agreed with a lot of what they were saying. We just hadn't found a way to get there yet. And there's this thing that Jim Griffin calls jungle economics which is when you know, your industry is, is so entrenched in one way of doing business and you know you have to grab you know, the, next, the next rope, but there's nothing there yet. You know, there's a big like cliff, basically. <laughs> there's nothing to land to. It's really hard to, to grab that rope. So you're sort of in between two things. And he was right about that because at the time, the industry was making all their money still on CDs. And they were trying to map that same 
um, construct into the digital world and it doesn't map exactly. It just doesn't. There's, there's new ways of monetizing, there's new ways of distribution, there's new ways of consumption, and you can't map that one-to-one. -one. And we hadn't figured out what those new ways were yet. So there was a, a lot of chaos basically going on. And very, very impassioned opinions on both sides, uh, none of which I necessarily disagreed with, except the fact that everything should be free. I very strongly disagreed that everything should be free. But the idea that there would be, well, at the time we call it the celestial jukebox, where you'd pay a flat fee per month for unlimited access, that's Spotify. That's Tidal, that's Apple Music, that actually came to be. Um, and it's actually right now, it's kind of like saving the industry. Um, so, I mean, we, are, we have like record, you know, not where we were before, but it's definitely up from where we've been. Uh, and it's, it's thanks to, you know, people actually paying for Spotify and paying for Apple and, you know, paying for these Deezer and so forth, paying for Sovin. But yeah, yeah, it was tricky during that time. Um, I think I, I always tried to respect the people in the room, um, even though I disagreed with them. And I think that served me. There's only a few that I would say never had a good relationship with but you know by and large you know we we'd be at the panel and have it out and we go to the bar and hang out you know and, and like talk like human beings um so yeah but i, I, I definitely that definitely thickened my skin when it yeah. came to you know what's professional and what's personal and also how to have an argument with someone so it doesn't get personal so you stay on topic um I think that's a really tough, tough skill to learn, and it's a valuable skill to learn. Um, and sort of back to what's going on into Facebook, what you were talking about with politics, it's something that people aren't good at, you know, because you can talk about, you can hotly debate the topic and stay on topic and be okay, but once you call someone an idiot, now it's personal, right? And that crosses the line, and then people are naturally defensive, and then they go harder, and now you're not even arguing anymore about what you're arguing about. You're just having a personal fight. So you never really want to let it get to that point. Um, and that's, that's a big lesson that I learned during that time and actually a skill I learned during that time that, that um, I try to stick to. It can, it can be hard, you know, when someone's calling you an idiot. It's, it's, <laughs> tough, to, it's tough to, you know, it's tough to keep it cool. Um, but, you know, that's also kind of why they're calling you an idiot they're just riling you up. So, yeah. Yeah. It was, yeah, it was, generally it was means definitely there's not much more to, there's not more, there's not more merit of the argument. So I'm just going to attack you. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you know, how can you think this? You're so stupid on and on and on. It's, it's, it's not a good way to argue. Um, I don't think with anything, you know, I, and I think even like marriage councils will tell you that the, couples who argue and stay on topic are the ones who are going to make it versus the ones who start personally attacking each other and saying your mother is ugly and you know <laughs> all, all those things um, yeah yeah no it was it was an interesting time for sure I learned a hell of a lot well I think the other uh, the other interesting thing and then I'm happy to move on from this uh, Sarah is that um, you know so many of the arguments while yes they were business arguments they were also, in a way, religion arguments or, you know, cosmological view of the world arguments. You, know, you talked mm -hmm. before about um, music should be free or information wants to be free, all those sort of early Internet um, uh, tropes that, um, well, even tropes is too loaded of, a word, loaded of a word, right? Because there are people that 
truly did and truly do believe that it was a it was a a political slash philosophical position um, about the nature of information and digitization and distribution. And so it's very easy for those conversations to get deep. One thing if it's simply a business negotiation about terms, but if it's about whether there should be a business negotiation about terms, much harder, much harder. Yeah. On the ground. Yeah. So the through line on everything you did and have been doing over the last 15 or 20 years, it seems to be that it has to do with really bridging that gap between between businesses or business ideas and the reality of what's happening in the marketplace, how to bring those two together, how to help the startup or the company or the artist or the idea generator sort of find their place in the commercial landscape. Is that, is that a fair take? Do you have a, do you have a point of view on how you think about what you do? Yeah. I mean, I would add that I'm, I'm just mostly interested in what's new. I'm not so interested in, in what's established. Like subscription services right now kind of bore me. They, they haven't really changed. They're established. It's a, it's a going concern. Um, I mean, I think if they, if they were to bring in social features, that would be a game changer to make it interesting again. But like, I'm not interested in subscription services. I was super interested in VR a couple of years ago because VR was really in an interesting space. Um, I'm interested in live streaming. And I've been watching it since 2016 because I saw the potential in it. And I saw it as a, a massive game changer for the way that artists can build and grow and monetize directly an audience with nobody's help, you know, um, which was completely, completely separate from anything we've seen so far. And before that, you know, I work with a mobile entertainment forum before there was an app marketplace, and that was all about getting entertainment onto cell phones. Um, and again, we didn't have the app store. We didn't have Android as a platform yet. So For if you the wanted to get, garden era. Yeah, yeah, um, which it's easy now. You want to get in a cell phone, you go build an app. You know, here's the API, here's, here's the SDK, go do it. You know, it's, it's really simple. Um, back then, you had to, are you going to be on carrier or off carrier? You know, you have like five different provisioning companies to even like put the whole thing together on top of what you were building. Uh, you know, it was incredibly complicated to do these things. Um, so, yeah, I, I like being at the beginning of, of a sector of technology because um, I like to see the potential in it and what, what it can really do, how it's really different. And I'm really interested in um, what the content is going to look like for that. Because I think it's too easy for us to try to do what we've done before on an entirely new medium. What, what ends up happening is the medium dictates what the content is. And it takes a while for us to figure out what's successful. And it's, never, it's hardly ever what was successful on the other mediums. If you know what I mean. Yeah. Yes, I love that line of, of inquiry. It, it was highlighted for me during the sort of COVID, you know, situation where, you know, I'm sure as you've seen, you know, whether it was webcasting, live streaming, um, artists using social tools, these things have been around now, you know, in the case of webcasting, 20 years or more in various forms. And it seemed like outside of 
sort of promotional usage, these things haven't found like their killer app or yeah. their 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 killer use case. One of the one of the early things was how the artists all started to take to Instagram and started to do things where even nine months ago, if you were a label marketing manager or something and you were trying to get your artist to be say more authentic on Instagram in the lead up to a release, um, you couldn't get them to do the candid things or do something from home or, you know, it all felt so, uh, for the most part, right. Um, we can all find uh, other use cases, but it, it was, it just felt so promotional and so like everything had to be through hair and makeup. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. and now, um, you know, we, I think you don't go back. Now artists have seen that it's not that scary to pick up the phone and post something candid or speak directly to the audience or interact with another celebrity. Um, or to your point, like develop new conventions around these types of content, like just like, a, you know, a, a sitcom or a dramedy or the one hour drama are all sort of conventions that evolved out of TV. Um, there will be conventions that come out of the live streaming realm and that come out of the, um, the social storytelling realm that were sort of driven by this new necessity. And I, 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 I agree with you 100 percent there. There will be new content types, and they won't go away when we get back to whatever we're going to get back to where concerts are available again, people can congregate and all these other things. I don't think these, these new methods are going to disappear. It's going to be another thing now in the artist toolbox. It'll be another creative tool, another promotional tool. So to me, that that's something really positive that came out of all this is the way artists were sort of encouraged or slash forced to keep being artists, right? Like they, they, they needed something for themselves to continue to put stuff out and to feel creative, to feel engaged, to have fun with their fans, to promote. And I, and I don't think they're going to forget about these tools and this functionality once, once the other stuff comes back. Um, I would argue we might see some artists that explore this realm more and don't go back to old ways. So it's going to be very interesting. I think the next you know, two, four, five years, um, it's going to be very, very interesting to see how artists use the, the sort of digital streaming realm to augment what they do in the, in the physical online space and how those two things start to blur. But I'm, I'm curious, in your, in your world of, of sort of being really immersed in live streaming, you talked about social in the context of the streaming services and how that's something that's missing from the subscription services. What's the difference between live streaming and what artists can do in social? So well, the streaming that I mean is like with Spotify, like I think Spotify is a really flat service and music is social. I think that's the big thing that Spotify and Apple and Tidal are missing with this. We like Facebook because it's social. Facebook is a news feed of what our friends are doing. How cool is that? You know, and a, a place for us to talk to each other and to stay in touch. How cool is that? That's why Facebook is successful. Um, Twitter is sort of that for people you don't necessarily know. Um, Instagram is just a very like visual version of that. So that's, and those are hugely popular backbone of the internet kind of services, right? So music is social. So why doesn't Spotify or Apple or Tidal have intrinsically social experiences in music? And not just the ticker, of what my friends are listening to because that's completely out of context. I don't know if they're recommending that or if they're just listening to a playlist. I, I have no idea what any of that means. But if there was a newsfeed, 
you know, within Spotify of songs that I'm super into or things that I think people would like. Um, if there was a way for me to figure out which of my friends were also massive Radiohead fans so we could all dork out on Radiohead together, you know, or any other band. Um, there's just things that are, that are just so blatantly missing that are not, by the way, blatantly missing in the Korean Japanese versions of these streaming services, which is mind-blowing. I was in Taipei last fall for a conference and was hanging out with, all, of course, all of American music people out there. And they were showing me these apps and they were mind blowing. It's like, why don't we have that here? It'd be so much more fun. Spotify is, is for me, Spotify is um, really intelligent radio. That's really what it is for me. It's really intelligent radio. Um, but it's not, it's not a way for me to hang out and listen to music with my friends, you know, in, in the moment or time shift, it doesn't matter, right? But my favorite thing ever to do <laughs> is sit around and listen to music with friends, you know, and like turn each other on to things. And there's, there's really no way to do that or to do it well. So that's, what I, that's why I say like they're missing a whole – that's a massive growth area for them. I think bigger than podcasts. Podcasts are nice. You know, they need to diversify outside of music. Um, good for them. Um, but – that's how you grow. That's how you make it sticky. You know, we all hate Facebook for various reasons. Very few of us actually leave it. Why is that? You know, it's because it's social, because we still want the news feed on our friends. Um, for me, you know, a lot of my industry is on there. Um, there are Facebook groups that I'm a part of that I get a ton of information out of. Um, so that's why I can't leave. There are these sticky things that are actually very valuable. I mean, Spotify doesn't have any of that. It's just, you know, there's just sort of like learned, uh, it learns me over time I and mean, that's hard to walk away from. And maybe I've built a bunch of playlists and that's hard to walk away from, but that's pretty much it. It's, it's a pretty disposable service in, in every other respect. But if they had grown the social aspect of it, um, that, that is a whole other reason to stick around for it. So um, that's, I mean, that's kind of where I think they should be. And I've told them that, but I, yeah. yeah, it sounds like a lot of what you're saying is the difference between useful and fun. Spotify is very useful. It's, it's helpful to have it in your pocket. You can look up a song anytime you want. You can, you know, I like some of the things they do. I, I like a lot of the things they do around the playlists they make for me. I do discover music. It's useful. Uh, mm -hmm. But I don't spend any time doing anything. Yeah, it's not fun. Um, it's actually counterproductive in terms of um, managing things like podcasts. It's nowhere near as easy to find that the newest podcast uh, podcast episodes as it is on the native podcast app. Like there's the product. I talk about this with with a lot of folks I talk to here. Um, the state of sort of product innovation streaming services in the West, in particular. Um, it's, it's really, it's really bleak. You know, when you have, when you, when you assume that basically everybody has roughly the same content, you know, it's not even differentiated the way the video services are. We can talk about whether podcasts are going to be that differentiator, but the products themselves are just not fun. They're not that exciting to use. They're just mm -hmm. a portal to the celestial jukebox. They just have different front ends to the, <laughs> to the celestial jukebox. And yeah, it does seem like a, a, missed opportunity you talk you know you could look at tiktok it's sort of the exact opposite right it's like 
part of it is it's not music first it's entertainment first and then music's there to augment the experience and i think if you you know when you start from that really precious music first mentality i think it leads to a lot of very narrow things about the product so talk to me a little then about how, how does one become an expert on twitch for musicians how do, how did you hours and hours are, and hours and hours yeah uh, of, it would of seem doing that it, way of doing it yeah I, I did it i did it so i started live streaming in 2016 on you now so that's when the light bulb turned on about this kind of live streaming is different from any other live streaming that i've ever seen um, or have worked with with my clients on completely different i actually call it community live streaming as, a poor, as opposed to live stream broadcasting, which is what the industry has been doing to this point, is live stream broadcasts, basically. Uh, one to many sort of television feel, you know, not a lot of interaction, um, Coachella, Lollapalooza, that sort of thing. If you're lucky, they'll have a Twitter feed going on next to it, but probably not. It's really meant, it's, it's a singular experience for, for, many, for many people at the same time what is a singular experience and um, the community live streaming that we see on on you now um, you know 200 services in China all do the same thing but it's it's basically um, it's live streaming with a really thick layer of community across the top of it it is um, it actually gamifies community which is the part that I thought was really fascinating and then it monetizes that gamification. So it takes a real freemium gaming concept towards live streaming. And I first ran into that with YouNow, um, and then I started streaming on YouNow because I couldn't quite understand where the monetization came in. So if, if you're not familiar, I'll give you the, the two sentence overview. Basically, um, turn your camera on, you live stream whatever it is that you do, uh, it shows in the video player. There's a chat alongside it. People are in the chat. You can read the chat while you're live, so you can verbally respond to any of the chat comments. Uh, so people um, will talk to you, and then um, they can do things like subscribe to your channel. Um, they can buy virtual currency and spend it on virtual gifts, and those gifts usually show up as animations on your screen um, that everybody can see. Um, and then, of course, there's lots of ways to take money off system through your PayPal, your Venmo, um, you know, selling your records or whatever it is. So that's, that's the basic thing. But it, it really the heart and soul of it really is this give and take in the chat. The fact that I can talk in the chat to the person who is streaming who will then read that and respond to me, you end up feeling as though you are in the same room, especially if the person who is streaming is in a very casual environment. You know, it's not like you're on a stage with lights and there's smoke and, you know, they're getting a comment every so often. Like, if it feels, it feels like you are hanging out in the basement having a few beers and playing some music. Um, and that's how it should feel. And there's the community between the streamer and the viewer. And there's also a whole community amongst the viewers. They all get to know each other. They see each other in other similar streams. Um, they end up having complete conversations in the chat that have nothing to do with a streamer because they're just hanging out with each other. And then there's a whole other community amongst the streamers 
um, so they kind of help each other grow in lots of ways. So there's actually mm -hmm. three community dynamics happening within live streaming. And I've seen this across the board in any sort of community live streaming platform. Um, and um, that would be Live Me or, or You Now or Twitch, um, anything that's like dedicated to live streaming. I kind of put YouTube and Facebook and Instagram outside of that a bit because that's live streaming services nested within a larger social network. Um, and just the, the basic operation of a social network is different from the basic operation of a live stream community platform. So having that nested in there, you sort of have the limitations of being within a social network. You don't have all the, you don't have as many um, um, ways to discover streamers and for streamers to promote each other that you would on a dedicated live stream platform. So what really knocked me out going back to 2016 when I started on you now, what really knocked me out was that people were not only showing up and chatting and talking, which is not a big leap, right, for the internet. So people do, they've been doing it since AOL chat rooms, show up and talk to each other. What got me was that people were paying. People were subscribing for five bucks a month. They were buying the virtual currency. And this was kids. This was teenagers, mostly on you now at the time. And they were doing content on, on you now that was very similar to what they might do on a YouTube channel. And these weren't kids that have big YouTube channels. They're like, they're, they're, they were what I like to call native streamers, meaning their first public, you know, content creator venture for them was on the live stream platform. They, they weren't coming from a huge Instagram following, huge YouTube following. So no one knew who they were. They built this community completely organically and people would actually pay them. And I couldn't understand why would teenagers pay for this when it's basically what they could see for free on YouTube, which they definitely were not paying for. Um, and it wasn't even as good as content as you could get on, you know, Spotify or Hulu or whatever. And we were having a really hard time at the time getting people to pay anything for Spotify. I'm like, well, they will pay five bucks a month for one channel on you now one person who goes live three times a week, which they might not even catch all those shows, but we can't get into here five bucks a month for Spotify. What is happening? So I started streaming. I'm like, I'm not going to figure this out until I do it. So I started a channel, um, which is basically um, a, an, a, an advice channel. Um, the premise was that uh, ask an adult. Um, if you want to ask an adult a question, um, that you don't want to ask an adult in your life for whatever reason, then you can ask me. And, not, you know, not a therapist, not a counselor, don't even have kids. Uh, but if you just want to bounce something off, like another adult who's lived a little, little longer than you have, then hit me. And uh, it was sort of an open forum for let's just hang out and talk and, you know, whatever you want to talk about. And it took off. After that first session, I completely understood what people were paying for. And I understood how you could build a community. I understood um, you now was, it was and is set up wonderfully to help people grow on the platform. Better, I think, than Twitch is set up, honestly. They, they have features that I think um, help, definitely help me grow my audience, like off the bat, uh, that Twitch doesn't have in place. Um, but basically it came down to feeling like you are seen and heard and listened to 
and there were other people in the chat that were similar to you. You know, live streaming, I keep saying, is um, it's content wrapped in community. The community actually outpaces the content a little bit. If you're good at creating community around yourself, people will come back. Community always stays fresh. Content gets stale. So keep your community fresh. Those are the principles that are happening on a live stream platform that are not happening on any other place. And when people feel that they're getting something of value, they will give something of value. And if you have low monetization, low engagement options for giving value, they will, they will do that. And then you have the high monetization, high engagement options. And the people who, are, who become your fans, you know, will do that. But the first, the first thing people pay for on a live stream platform is improving their experience. And this is the big difference. They're actually not paying for content. They're paying to improve their experience first. And improving your experience is um, spend, spending some money on some virtual currency and then making a little animation happen on the screen with my name on it. That's fun for me. You know, it shows my appreciation to the streamer, but that's fun for me. It's fun for me to do that and then to get the thank you and to get the acknowledgement and see my name up there. That's fun. Um, on Twitch, the subscriptions are fun because the creators get to make their own emoji. And Twitch does not have universal emoji. They have their own set of emoji, and it's very gamer and inside jokey. So all the normal ones you'd, you'd want to use aren't, don't, aren't there. So um, for non-gamer people, <laughs> um, creators, you know, create their own emoji. And it's worth it. It's fun for me to use the emoji because I want to express myself in the chat and the best way I can do that is through pictures, not through words, you know? So, so, you know, I'm, I am paying to improve, I am subscribing to improve my experience first. And then secondly, I acknowledge that the creator is getting cut in on that. So I can also feel good about supporting somebody, but I'm supporting them in a way that's fun for me. That's the first stage. The second stage is when you start paying for gift subscriptions, which means that you see other people coming into the chat who are becoming fans and you gift them a subscription. And that is, you kind of get a warm feely from that, but it's not, it's not like I'm going to get more emotes out of that or more emoji out of that. Um, it's really me now becoming a patron of the creator. And that's where we get into the high engagement, you know, high monetization type things. Um, on Twitch, you can also tip to, um, for song requests. And I've seen tips as low as $2. I've seen tips as high as $100, you know, to play one song live, not to buy a song, to play a song. Um, a pretty standard tip amount is $5. So, you know, 5 to $10 tip to play one song. And we go back, you know, to 2016, where we couldn't get anybody to pay $5 for a full month of Spotify. You know, people were, they still are sharing Netflix passwords. You know, super, super high, you know, premium content is hard to move. But if you can make people feel like they're a part of something and give them fun, low monetization ways to improve their experience that also benefit the creator so they feel like they're doing something good for the little guy, that's powerful. It's extremely powerful. And that's what's happening. 
And it's happening so well that artists who, native live streamers, had little to nothing going on on Instagram, Spotify, YouTube. Because I was there in 2016. I watched all these artists. I would go to their YouTube. I would go to their Instagram. They had nothing going on. Under 1,000 followers, under 500 views per video on YouTube. If they were even on Spotify, even if they, if they had even put a record out, you know, it was definitely that under 2,000 category. Like nothing going on. You have never heard of these people. And these were artists that were either making a nice side hustle or doing it full time supporting themselves full-time, doing nothing but streaming. Um, so we've gone from, you know, reliance on an entire industry to artists being able to put out their own records through TuneCore and CD Baby and so forth. And now we've gone to the point where you don't even need that. You don't even need to put records out. You know, you don't even need to be on Spotify to be able to, be able to support yourself. That is, to me, the watershed of this whole thing. That is the massive game changer. That is what I like talking about. And this is exactly where I live in my career. When I see these big watershed game changers come along and I've got to figure out, okay, so, so what does this mean to everybody? You know? Um, and the thing with Twitch is that it's so complicated to put a channel together. It's not easy. Like on you now, um, you go live through the website. You, you basically just, you know, allow access to camera, boom, there you go. It's really, really easy. Um, and all the monetization is set up, all the alerts are set up already through the platform. Twitch is not like that. Twitch is a lot, a lot more like YouTube. YouTube is where you put you know, the video that you made and people go to watch it. And that's pretty much the beginning and end of YouTube. They don't do anything else for, <laughs> anything else for you besides run some ads on it. And that's kind of like Twitch. You know, if you want alerts on your screen when somebody follows you or makes a donation or raids you that's not twitch a different service does that you know if you want to um you want to create your stream you would use obs twitch finally in the last year has their own live stream production software it's called twitch studio it's nowhere near as advanced as obs but obs is the gold standard for a live stream production software um, by the way that you could use on anything you can use on any live stream platform obs is is the standard for that um, and it's tricky. It's tricky to learn. Um, and then, you know, you've got, you've got to figure out, okay, so then how do we make the sound good? There was, there's so many layers to it. It took me two months to put, um, Marina, Marina V is my client. It took me two months to put her channel together. And I'm good at this. I've never Googled tech help so much in my entire life as I did doing this. And I'm actually really good at this stuff. So I just thought, you know, it's too hard. It's way too hard, but it's also too good of an opportunity for DIY artists. Like they're, they're just, they're going to tap out. It's too complicated. So that's why I decided to um, write a book and to make a course to make it easy for them to learn. And I started writing it a little over a year ago. So it was um, spring of 2019. The book came out in August of 2019. And then um, I put out the second edition in February of 2020 right before the pandemic hit. Fortunately, I would not have had time to do that um, if I hadn't, hadn't already. Um, but enough things had changed even in that six months. And I'm like, okay, I got to update some stuff. You know, there's just stuff that's just completely outdated now. That's how fast it moves. Um, but yeah, there's a, there's a lot to know. There's a lot to know. And the book covers uh, in the very beginning, like everything we just talked about, 
which is how is this different? How is creating content for this different than every other platform I'm on? How is it complementary um, or, or not complementary to everything I'm doing on Facebook and Instagram? Should I skip one for the other? Uh, basically, what am I doing here and what is this? You know, and then I get into, okay, this is how you put your channel together. The, the meat of the book, honestly, is it's a tech tutorial. It's 80% tech walkthroughs with screenshots oh. and click here and do this and you know, this is how you're going to set your encoding and you're, you're, you're going to set up your OBS so you're not dropping frames and your audio sounds good and this is how you're going to connect your alerts and these are the ones that you definitely need and the ones that maybe you don't need and here's how to run some loyalty programs and here's how to run your chat bots because you can automate your chat in lots of ways um, with pre-programmed messages and you can also automate responses to messages through chatbots and those are really powerful. So how do you do those? And then the last chapter is um, basically, okay, now that you have a channel built, like what do you do? You know, the camera's on, what do I do? Um, so what do you do um, during the show and then what do you do between your streams? So um, that's a lot of what I cover. And I wrote it for Twitch because not that Twitch paid me, they, they did not. Um, I just think and still do think that Twitch is the best place for DIY musicians because there's already a healthy music community there. And it's just, it's easier. It's like, it's like moving to, you know, to Austin if you want to be a, a roots rocker. You know, it's like moving to Nashville if you want to be a country artist. Like you want to go where there's an existing community set up to support you. That's what Twitch is. There's an existing mm -hmm. music community they all support each other and there are people there who are watching this already audience, you know, versus doing it on Facebook where the only people on Facebook are going to show up are the ones who are already following you. And then the same for YouTube. The ones that are going to watch your YouTube stream are the ones who are already watching you that you already can promote to. And you can actually start from zero on Twitch and do okay. So that's, that's why I wrote it for Twitch. I mean, interesting now people are streaming everywhere. So, um, I still, I still support Twitch, but I say now, like, look, if you have audience on Facebook, stream on Facebook. Go where you have audience. It's hard to build audience. You know, if you're big on Instagram, stream on Instagram. Do you see a version of what you do being less about Twitch for musicians and more about live streaming for artists? Like, is it... Do you, do you I feel to, like everything I've been doing has always been about live streaming. Um, it's just for, for this use, I've been focusing on Twitch for artists, because again, because I think for indie artists, it really is the best. Um, but yeah, I, I'm a live streaming advocate. I'm not necessarily a Twitch advocate. I could yeah. be writing a different book in a year, you know? Um, yeah, TikTok shows tremendous potential. TikTok live streaming shows tremendous potential. It works a lot more like you now than it does like Twitch. And if you have a hit as an artist on TikTok, stream on TikTok. It's monetized. It's really fun. Like all the little gamification, you know, social gamification things you need are on there. And by the way, they're not on Instagram. Instagram has no monetization um, or they may have by now, but it's very, very little. There's nothing fun about it. It's a very flat service. The only reason to do it is because you have audience there, right? But, you know, the best you can do is say, here's my PayPal. But there's, there's, there's no... That's throwing money into a vacuum. Throwing money into my PayPal while I'm streaming, like I won't even see that, right? 
unless I have my PayPal page up and I'm constantly getting notifications, but that's very distracting. There's, you're throwing money into a vacuum and some artists do really well with that and that, that's great for them. But I think if you're doing well on that level, you could be doing, you know, five times that if you actually have these gamified, fun, interactive, monetized tools that services like you now and Twitch and TikTok have. There's something I want to go back to that you said, which was um, that you use the analogy of, you know, going to Austin or Nashville, um, and which is why you go to Twitch, because there's already a supportive community there and a, and a sort of network of people there that, that want to see you be successful. Um, what was that born of? Is it because gamers naturally pivoted to music or were there pioneers on the music side who sort of set up camp on Twitch and were sort of the first people to, to build a music presence there? Like, why did Twitch resonate with music? Yeah, so, I mean, the music category on Twitch doesn't have a lot to do with gaming, honestly. I think some of the, some of the first streamers on there were certainly gamers who also do music. Um, but I think the, the initial wave of growth, say over the last four years before the pandemic hit, the organic growth has been people who are musicians and most likely not gamers. Um, or if they're gamers, they're very casual gamers. They're like Mario Kart gamers. They're not League of Legends <laughs> gamers. Right. You know what I'm saying? Um, this sort of became a little pocket um, that um, people discovered um, and told their friends about. And then, you know, more, more musicians came on. And there have been dedicated music live stream platforms. There were four in the last year that went under because of, from what I could tell, lack of interest. Um, I think it's extraordinarily hard to have a music live stream platform, especially with artists that you've never heard of. I think that the only reason it has survived on Twitch is because it is completely incidental to Twitch's success. It could, meaning it could not be there and it would not move the needle at all on Twitch's success. Um, it sort of has been nested within this gaming platform, right? So, and I think it works on a gaming platform because gamers are really about um, creative content and they're generally very creative people. Um, so, you know, podcasts are big on there, cosplay is big on there, um, ASMR, like sort of the, anything sort of in that creative realm plays well um, on Twitch. Music in particular, because it's more universal than cosplay, it's more universal than ASMR, you know, yeah. and it's sort of fun. And the artists, they're, you know, they're not doing concerts. They're hanging out and playing a song and talking to people, hanging out and playing a song and talking to people. And if you can be a good creator and a good entertainer, then you'll, you'll do well. And that's kind of what bore out to, to, um, to be what, what succeeded there. Um, but you know, a lot of people on Twitch don't realize that there's a music section until I think they know now because there's, you know, there's, there's a, there's a navigation for it, <laughs> top level navigation. Um, but you know, to this point, a lot of gamers didn't realize that there was music on it, yeah. but that is, shows you how big Twitch is. Twitch is so big. They have so many users that it can sustain, you know, a small category like music and to the level that there are enough viewers that the people who are there can make a little money with them. Um, and I think, 
absent it being nested into a a platform like Twitch where it had four or five years runway to really develop over time. Like a dedicated live stream platform could never get enough VC money to have four or five years runway. No way, no way. They get two years max. You know, it's really hard to build. But if you can be in the space where it can be nurtured by this larger entity and over time, before this even, before the pandemic, Twitch had been taking notice of music and putting musicians on the front page and, you know, assigning partner relationships to, to um, musicians and kind of playing with this whole idea of, you know, what if we would expand beyond games and this looks like it's an, a natural organic interest area for our users. How can we foster that? How can we feed that and grow it? You know, that's sort of been their attitude towards it so far. Absent, you know, having this sort of incubation period, I don't think it would have survived, you know, because every other dedicated platform that has come along, which have all been good, by the way. And one was even owned by Line, the Korean company. Um, and they had a really, really great staff uh, and, and established artists on there and everything, and they couldn't make it. I think it's only because it didn't matter if it made it, that they had enough time to truly grow this organically um, and, and to make it a thing on its own and, and not have the economic pressure right, of having to succeed or not. Um, that's, why, that's why it lives there, honestly. Um, I think if that hadn't been there and the pandemic hit, I think everybody would be pretty much on Facebook and YouTube and stage it. Yeah. yeah. What's the uh, nature of your relationship with Twitch? Do they know you? Do, you? do you talk to them? Do you get leaked? Do you get, you know, what's, what's the... I, I've been very friendly. <laughs> yeah, no, I've been very friendly with the music department for a little over a year. When I first started getting into this, um, you know, someone I've known for a very long time is, you know, over there in licensing. And, you know, we were talking a year ago. Um, just sort of meet people over time, for sure. Um, I ended up managing, you know, one of the one of the bigger musicians on Twitch. So just sort of met people through her, went to TwitchCon a couple of times and met people that way. Um, and then just people that I've just known from the industry have gone over there. So, you know, we've just sort of been talking through that. But yeah, it's, it's, a, very, it's a very friendly relationship. Yeah. Well, do me a favor. Before I let you go, and, I, you know, you're graciously going over our allotted time, if you can, take out your, uh, your virtual crystal ball for me. And um, you mentioned early in the call that your, you know, where you get excited is the new and the innovative and once something kind of hits it mainstream, if you will, I don't think you use that word, but you know what I'm getting at. So yeah. Something hits its critical mass or its adoption and you're looking for the next new. Where are we at in the, um, in the arc with live streaming? Are we closer to the beginning, the middle, or is it now settling into a steady state? No, we're in the beginning of the hockey stick for sure. For sure. Um, look, when I, when this book came out in, August, I went to the CDBB DIY Musician Conference and I had my little stack of flyers and walk around. Anybody who wasn't already in a conversation with somebody else, I would say, hi, have you heard of Twitch? And hand them a flyer. And, you know, 90% had never heard of Twitch. The 10% who did um, knew it because they were a gamer, had no idea there was music on it. People I talked to um, in the industry were like, oh, Twitch, that's a gaming thing, right? There was like zero visibility. 
So the things that I, were talk, I was talking about even eight months ago, nine months ago, was the very beginning. What is live streaming? What is Twitch? What do the two have to do with each other? And why does this make sense for music? That's not a conversation I have with anybody anymore. The conversation I have now with people is what do we do? Do we do something on Twitch? Do we do it on Facebook? Do we charge? You know, what do we do is the question now. So I think we're at the very beginning of this hockey stick. And I think, you know, the longer that people don't wear masks, um, the longer we're going to have a coronavirus issue where we can't bring people together, you know, in large gatherings, which means concerts are really going to be a completely different experience and be very reliant on live streaming. I actually think that concerts are going to come back. I think they'll come back at 25% capacity. I think that people will be sort of like cordoned off in different parts of the venue or it'll be a drive-in or whatever it is. And I think that um, a live streaming experience is going to be coupled with that. And um, I really think that the live streaming experiences are going to be geofenced. So people can tour. You can actually tour, but if you play Phoenix, you're going to play to you know, a quarter of the people you normally play to, and then everybody who is in Phoenix can live stream that show for $15, $20. But if you want to go in person, you know, it's a lot more, obviously, and there's probably, like, by default, some sort of VIP experience that goes with that. Um, so sort of inverted that, blackout restrictions, the way sports would, would yes. block out the home market, you would block yes. out everybody else and say, tonight, I'm only in the Phoenix Metropolitan. Tonight, this live stream is only here, you know, and it becomes this sort of everybody in Phoenix has that sort of like, hey, we're all in Phoenix. We also begin common. You know, we're all in the chat. We're all in the same city. It's the same time. It's the same storm outside. It's the same whatever, you know, there is a sort of sense of community that you go through with that, which is going to have a, a really big impact on the chat, I think. Uh, yeah. But I think we, we're going to be in the sort of hybrid state. Um, we, I mean, we, as an industry, we can't just not do this. You know, there's going to be solutions. We're already seeing drive-in tours, right? Um, we're seeing, like, parking lots at, at airports, you know, being turned into drive-in theaters and so forth. There's, like, a lot of innovation going on. But even with that, you, that's only so many cars, right? That's only so many people. That's only so many concessions. Even that, you know, is kind of a break-even proposition. So um, there has to be this sort of, like, live stream element. To, to, to pad those numbers and why shouldn't there be you know and some people honestly are kind of realizing live streaming is kind of awesome you know you got to see the show you got to talk to people you got to hang out you don't have to pay for parking you don't have to be in traffic you don't have to, you can definitely see and as a short person i appreciate being able to see the show you know and not be bobbing through and like dodging all the tall people that's great for, a lot of people are finding that the live stream experience is actually kind of fun and it's it's pretty good you know and it's worth it to them um, especially some of the artists on stage it who are doing this weekly, you know, and making tens of thousands of dollars weekly, yeah. not yeah. leaving their house at all. Um, that's pretty phenomenal. I mean, there are definitely artists who are making more money than they ever have. If they can sustain this throughout the year, they will have made more money in one year than they ever have on the road. Yeah. So, well, you know. yeah, there's, there's great implications too for, for both artists and attendees in terms of people who, might have disabilities or who it's difficult for them to make, for them to get out or like there's a whole audience uh, for which the in-venue live concert experience was either out of touch or not appropriate or just a bad fit and um, those people now get a new way to experience 
the community around music and yeah. the live performance. So yeah, I, I appreciate but, the but there's but there, but that's the, the thing though. That's the thing. If you don't have some level of community, we are back to a live stream broadcast. Right. And a live stream broadcast is just television and television is not worth paying $20 for. And that is why live streaming to this point has not taken off. You know, we have very, very few services that will, people will pay for live streaming. And it's generally jam bands. It's generally jam bands who can pull that off. Um, right. But to this, to this point, no one's really felt like paying 15, 20 bucks to watch a, uh, to watch a concert, you know, somewhere else in the world where they are not. Um, and I, I think that's entirely valid because there's nothing really special about that. But if you can find a way to bring in this level of community, and it's difficult the larger the artist is, um, but if you can do that, then it becomes worth paying for because people will come back and back and back for community. They will not come back and back and back for content. You know, um, BTS just had massive... Um, live stream 20 million dollars right and oh, yeah. you know they i didn't watch it but there had to have been some crazy because the fans want to be social with each other that's part of the fun you know i think we all had our little you know fangirl fanboy moment with a band we love when we were 12 right and half of the fun was the other people who love the band as much as you you know and then the other half of the fun was the band is so great I don't know anything about them and I want to look like them and dress like them and know all the songs and know all the lyrics and everything. But half of the fun, honestly, was the other people. So if you can build that other people fun component in, that's what it's all about. That's the power of the platform. Otherwise, just put it on demand on YouTube or yeah. throw up a video premiere, you know, pre-recorded, you know, as a live broadcast. Because I don't, I don't see what the difference is if you're not going to throw in some level of community. Yeah. So that's, well, um, that's the creative challenge. That's what I, I'm really interested to see what people come up with now that we're sort of out of the panic mode and out of the let's just try whatever mode. And um, people are a little, more, um, a little more careful and strategic about what they do next. You know, managers aren't just saying yes to every opportunity they're a little more careful about, okay, so what's the audience and what's the money behind this? And, you know, it's not just like, let's just put something out to get people through this horrible hump we're in. We're sort of in a, in a we, are, we are beginning the new normal. And the new normal will be anything but normal in terms of what people do creatively with their live streams, which is super fun because there's so many things you can do. You know, if you're creative with it, there's so many things you can do. Um, so that that's the part that I'm actually excited about for the rest of the year is to see like what kind of crazy insane stuff do people come up with just to have a bunch of stupid fun on their live streams and see what that means to the bottom line at the end of the day. Yeah. Well, I hope, um, I hope we can stay in touch uh, over the course of the next several months. And, and uh, if you find some interesting stuff, please share it with me. Um, I'm looking forward now to uh, sharing your enthusiasm for this. You're, you're a great advocate for the, uh, for the, the sort of genre or for the medium and uh i really appreciate you making time to to talk to me and educate me about this and uh so thank you it's been a really fun conversation thanks so much thank you so much karen allen thanks to aunt taylor and the entire team at light 
If you're interested in what we're up to at Light, visit us at lyte.com. And thank you for listening to Spotlight On. We're available from Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else with a podcast button. Spotlight On is produced and edited by Craig Snyder. Keep your feedback coming. Reach me directly at lp at light.com. Thanks again for listening. Be safe and stay in touch. Thank you.